time if this is your first Sunday as we jump into a new sermon series. So this really is week one. This is the first time that video was even shown. We're diving this morning into the book of Esther. Not sure how familiar everyone in this room is with the book of Esther. It's a fascinating book of the Bible. We're going to dive into it for really the next couple of months, carrying us on into the early part of June. Uh, it's a fascinating book on a number of accounts. The book of Esther was was written roughly 2,500 years ago. So we're talking about a very, very ancient story. It's an anonymous writing. We don't really know for certain who wrote the book. Some believe it was Esther's cousin Mordecai, who we will meet next week as we dive into chapter 2. Certainly seems to make a lot of sense that the author would have been of Jewish descent, living in the heart of the Persian Empire, both of which were true of Mordecai. But ultimately, we're, we're really left to speculation. As far as the, the storyline goes, uh, in, in 586 B.C., so we're talking roughly 600 years before Jesus shows up onto the scene, under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, God's people were exiled into the land of Babylon where they lived for roughly half a century. And toward the end of that half century, the Persians ended up conquering the Babylonians, the one who had taken God's people into exile. And the Persian king Cyrus issued a decree allowing the Jews to return back to their home, back to Jerusalem. Many of God's people took Cyrus up on the offer, but some, some didn't. Some decided to stay in the land that they had come to know, a land that had ultimately been swallowed up into the gargantuan landmass known as the Persian Empire. As the story of Esther begins, we're told that Persia's been the dominant power for a little over half a century at this point. There's conflict in the city of Susa, which would be modern-day Iran for us, under the reign of the Persian king Ahasuerus, the kind of conflict that poses a real threat for the Jews. And the question that they're faced with is this. Will we be exterminated from the storyline of redemptive history? Is God still with us or has he abandoned us to our sin in the judgment of exile? Are we still God's people in covenant relationship with him? The book of Esther emphatically declares, as we're going to see for the next two months, yes, God is at work to see his redemptive purposes to fulfillment even in the godless land of Persia. As the story goes, I'm giving away the ending here, Esther, a Jewish orphan raised by her older cousin Mordecai, becomes queen of the Persian Empire, and she ends up saving the Jews from certain annihilation. It's a, it's a fascinating story, as you're going to see for the next couple months, particularly if you've never engaged it. For, for Jews, it's really easy to see how a story like this would top the list of favorites, how you would go and grab this one off the shelf, maybe before any others in terms of the canon of scripture. It, it declares that no matter how severe the threat, the Jewish people have a hope and a future. It, it shows the establishment of the Feast of Purim, which we'll get to soon enough as we dive into the story itself. But for Christians, it's, it's a little bit more, more difficult to know what to do with a book like this. In fact, because of the struggle to see the relevance of the book of Esther for the Christian community, not a single Christian commentary was, was written on this book of the Bible in the first seven centuries of the New Testament church. So 700 years roughly after the New Testament church is established before we see uh, the first true commentary on this book of the Bible from a Christian perspective. It's kind of like green snot in our kids' ministry. The church just steered clear, basically. Um, around the time of the Reformation, around 1,500 years after the establishment of the New Testament church, that's when we got the first serious commentary. And even then, guys like Luther and Calvin did not provide a commentary on this book of the Bible, though they did provide commentaries on just about every book of the Bible. In fact, Luther went so far as to say that Esther had no place in the canon of Scripture. To quote Luther himself, he said, quote, 
I am so great an enemy to the second book of the Maccabees and to Esther that I wish they had not come to us at all, for they have too many heathen unnaturalities. Luther's like, man, I only read PG-13 books of the Bible. This thing seems to be rated R. I don't want anything to do with it. Part of the, part of the controversy lies in the fact that, that this is an incredibly difficult book to interpret. The characters are presented as morally ambiguous at best. Rarely do we actually even get the motives for why they do what they do or why they say what they say. And, and to top that, the name of God is not mentioned one single time throughout the entire story. And then... To add problems and complications on top of problems and complications, if you leave the book of Esther to look elsewhere in the scriptures for clarity regarding the book of Esther, you will not find it. There's, there's nothing to say once you leave the book of Esther about this book of the Bible. No external commentary. All we have is the historical account itself. And so with all these challenges, I think it's a fair question to ask, why dive into this particular book of the Bible? Why go here? For one... According to the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, and that includes the book of Esther, so it's the easy go-to for pastors. But secondly, this book of the Bible really does deal with some incredibly significant theological and existential questions that I think we all find ourselves asking. Questions like, do you ever find yourself wrestling with the question of God's will for your life? And everybody in the room said a hearty amen, right? We could just stop there. Do you, do you ever wonder whether God has anything significant for you to participate in regarding the building of his kingdom? Do you struggle to believe that God is at work even in the midst of the most mundane moments of your life? Do you ever struggle with the need to be in ultimate control of your own life and destiny, fighting tirelessly to make sure that your plans are not frustrated, analyzing the significance of every unfolding event of your life to a fault? Have you ever wondered how divine providence and human responsibility actually work together? Do you ever wonder what to do with those moments in life that, that God's fingerprints appear to be absent? Those are just a few, a few of the questions that, that the book of Esther invites us to ask. And I don't know about you, but, but I wrestle with every single one of those questions personally. I've experienced the paralyzation that comes with trying to sort out the will of God for my life. I've attempted to proverbially shove God into the passenger seat, thinking that I'm a better driver of my life than he is. I've tasted the tears of despair when I wasn't sure that God was really there, when I couldn't see his fingerprints on my life. And so I don't know about you, but, but I need some adequate weaponry that I can wield in the midst of the battle against sin and unbelief. And that's my hope for this series, that, that the book of Esther would become yet another weapon in your arsenal to aim at your heart, not just during this series, but but for months and years to come as you move forward through the Christian life. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Esther chapter 1. We're going to work our way through the entirety of that chapter this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or the translation that you happen to own is difficult to track with, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive into this fascinating story together. God, I would imagine that most every one of us in this room have wrestled with the questions that I just presented to us all. The question of what your will is for our lives, the, the question of how your sovereignty and providence collide with human responsibility, how the two work together, the question of, of whether or not there's a ceiling on our prayers. 
as to whether or not they make it beyond that ceiling to you at times, whether or not you're absent when we can't see your, your fingerprints. I'd imagine that many of us in this room have exhausted ourselves trying to figure out the, the intricacies of what's going on behind the curtain as, as you, uh, the, the greatest and most powerful Oz, work in our lives for your glory and our joy. We want to figure it out. We want to, we want to attempt to lift up the hood, so to speak, and see what's underneath and understand it all. And I don't think we get that luxury, as we'll see in this story, but we do get the encouragement of knowing that, like the great Aslan and C.S. Lewis's chronicles, that you are always on the move. You're always on the move for your glory and redemptive purposes, and you're always on the move for the good and joy of your people. Pray that we would see that this morning. Pray that if, if any are in this room this morning, not followers of Jesus, that they would see that all other kings and kingdoms crumble. That they would see the, the folly and the weakness of even the greatest powerhouses that have existed throughout human history and would see, Jesus, that you are a good, glorious, and gracious king worthy of worship. Holy Spirit, would you move, would you stir in our hearts and our minds this morning, and would you work to change us, conform us to the image of the good King Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. All right, let's get after it. Verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces in those days... When King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. All right, this is a grade schooler's dream for a literature course. If you had to write a, a book report on the book of Esther, the author makes it a relatively easy task. Right off the bat, you're given the, the who, the what, the when, and the where of the story. The who, King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is the biblical name for Xerxes. It's the very same Xerxes that you encounter in movies like 300. This is the Xerxes that, that fought the Greeks at the Battle of Thermopylae. The Xerxes who was ultimately defeated at the Battle of Salamis. From this point on, you, you'll hear me uh, use the two names interchangeably. Ahasuerus is Xerxes and Xerxes is Ahasuerus. But Xerxes is a little easier to pronounce. So probably going to go there more often than the other. Just so you know. Xerxes was a very powerful man. He inherited the Persian Empire from his father, the largest empire to exist up to that point in human history. He was 32 years old at the time that he became king. That is terrifying in and of itself, is it not? One of the, one of the greatest achievements in his life was the completion of the, the palace that his father began in the city of Persepolis. And, and within that palace, on one of the foundation stones... You, you get an idea through an inscription of how the king perceived himself. The inscription reads, quote, I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries which speak all kinds of languages, the king of this entire big and far-reaching earth, the son of King Darius, the Archimenean, a Persian, son of a Persian, an Aryan of Aryan descent. 
you haven't figured it out, the great King Xerxes thinks very highly of himself. You'll see that throughout all of chapter 1. He was essentially the king of the known world. Even the language of 127 provinces. There were other ways to communicate the, the nature of the rule and reign of King Xerxes. But the author wants us to understand and see just how great and powerful this king truly was. He, he reigned and ruled over roughly 3 million square miles, a little smaller than the landmass known as the United States of America. He, he was truly great. He was worshipped as a god by his people. One of, the, one of the terrifying realities of the setting of this story is that it's a land of irrevocable law, which verse 19 tells us. But it, it's irrevocable law put in place by a king who, who's whimsical, a king who's arrogant, and a king who is incredibly morally depraved. As we'll see throughout the entirety of chapter 1 and, and on as we go. The, the where of the story, according to verse 2, is the city of Susa. The fortified city and capital of the Persian Empire. One of a, a few capital cities, in fact. The weather in the cold season was, was perfect in Susa. And so it was the city that the, the royal court would snowbird in, in the cold winter months, you might say. It was the Florida panhandle of the Persian Empire. You can get your mind around that. The, the palace in Susa was, was established, geographically speaking, as a place of high elevation with the idea that, that the people would have to, to look up to see the great King Xerxes high and exalted. And in return, the king would look down on his people from his royal throne. So you're getting all these descriptors of, of just how glorious the king truly is, even in the when and where of the story. The when, according to verse 3, is the third year of his reign as king. Not long before the king is to go to war against the Greeks in an effort to expand his empire. So, so the king is right around the age of 35 as the story unfolds. The what of the story, which becomes a recurring theme in the book of Esther, you'll see it over and over and over again, is a banquet. In fact, you see three of them in chapter 1 alone. At, the, at this time and place in human history, rulers would use use banquets, they would put them on in order to show their greatness, to put their glory on display, and to sustain the loyalty of their subjects. Xerxes essentially getting ready for the war against Greece, and he's likely rallying support amongst his people and military leaders as the story begins. According to verse 3, all of the king's officials and servants are in attendance. You've got nobles, you've got governors, you've got military who are on site, which had to be a ton of people because according to the historian Herodotus, the king's bodyguard alone, get this in your mind, the king's bodyguard alone included roughly 2,000 horsemen, 2,000 lancers, and 10,000 infantry. 14 14,000 bouncers working at Club Xerxes, okay? This is a lot of people uh, that, who are surrounding this king and his greatness. For, for 180 days, we're told that the king opens up his home to thousands of officials and servants, commanding their loyalty through good food, good drink, a harem of women, and gifts of gold and silver. 100, 180 days. Remember that time that you and Jim Beam became such good pals that you forgot six months of your life? Probably not, right? None of us have, have gone there. The most ethically questionable experience in this room probably involved a, a week-long experience at a CD resort in Cancun. This is a whole nother level that we're meant to see of debauchery as we encounter this king and his kingdom. According to verse 5, we're told that the king establishes a second banquet. This time for the people of Susa, a feast lasting seven days. And all the city, both 
both great and small, invited to the king's palace, many of which were, were probably honestly on the serving teams who helped to create that six-month throwdown that took place for the king's bodyguard and officials and leaders. One day, you're living off a diet of bread and water. The next day, you're hanging out with, with the king and his VIP. But here's the reality of it all. The, the great king Xerxes doesn't establish these lavish banquets for the love of his people. He does so to show, verse 4, the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. It's all about the glory of self, the great king Xerxes. And we see it as the story continues on in verse 6. It says, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds and the, the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Now you, now you get a description of the king's palace. This was... This was a time in which the Persian Empire was still relatively young. For most people in that day and place, life was difficult. Food was a little hard to come by. Even those producing works of art that that to this day are, are marveled at, they struggled to make ends meet. Meanwhile, the king is living in unparalleled luxury. What's the most what's the most lavish event that you've ever been to? Maybe a wedding reception, a business-related black tie affair. My guess is that most of us have probably never been to a party filled with people walking on and sitting on things that most of us would keep in a vault. That's my guess, right? 24-karat couches. Those, those hip-hop artists that, that wrote in the 90s about their opulent lifestyles and brought that into the realm of hip-hop were never rapping about 24-karat couches. Bruno Mars, when he sings about 24-karat magic in the air, I don't think this is what he's talking about. Even... Even Chip and Joe opt for shiplap, which, by the way, a lot cheaper and still looks pretty. This guy, 24-karat couches, lazy boys made of gold. Thousands of people drinking wine out of a box? I don't think so. This is the good stuff. Even the description of the colors, white and purple. Purple dye, which was obtained from a certain type of shellfish in the ancient world, was the only color-fast dye of that time. And so purple became a a status symbol of royalty and wealth. We talked about this when we walked through the seven churches in Revelation, that if that shellfish had created orange dye, then in every kingly story, every kingly movie that you were to watch, every kingly children's book, you would see the king and queen wearing orange robes. Again, it's a declaration of the excellencies of the great King Xerxes. We, we know that this is an accurate description of the king's wealth because we're told in the history books that during one of Xerxes' retreats from the Greek army, he left his tent behind, and in that tent were gold and silver couches. The Greeks were, were actually a little baffled by the whole deal. Why would such a king want to conquer our Greek poverty? Wealth like the world had never known. These verses... They're really just a continuation of the first five verses of the story. Excess. We're meant to be impressed with the lavishness of it all and a little disgusted by the wastefulness of it all at the same time. Kind of like when you watch MTV Cribs or Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, depending on your generation, everyone in the room just got dated by those two examples. 
Kind of like how you feel when you see the president using your tax dollars to board Air Force One for his month-long family vacation in Bora Bora. That's how you're supposed to feel, a little bit of that. I wish it was me, and I'm grossed out by it at the same time. 127 provinces, an open bar feast lasting 180 days. And verse 4 just goes on to tell the same story. It says, And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. There's no true ethic here. It's go big or go home. It's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the ethic of the Persian kingdom under the reign of the great king Xerxes. Verse 9 tells us of a third feast. It says, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So we're told of this, this third feast, a feast given by Queen Vashti for the king's harem. Notice the lack of descriptors in verse 9. It's a very short verse. We're meant to see the contrast between the excessiveness of the king and the modesty of the queen. The author, he, he's essentially setting us up for the farce of this entire story. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, here we go, Mehiman, Bistha, Carbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar, and Karkas. By the way, there, there's no seminary course on how to pronounce names in the, the first chapter of Esther, so take all that with a grain of salt. I'm just going to call them the seven eunuchs from this point on. That's how they're described. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus commanded them to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti, verse 12, refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. The the king goes to to great efforts to show the, the splendor, the fullness of his glory, to put it on display. And he intends for Queen Vashti to be an exhibit in that display. He intends for her to be shown off to the masses in attendance. Leading up to these verses, the the description of the king's riches is meant to show us who's actually in charge. It's meant to show us that the king rules. In fact, if you go back and study all of chapter 1, when you leave this place, you'll notice that the words king, queen, royal, and reign occur in every one but one single verse in all of chapter 1. It's the royal throne. It's the king's palace. It's the royal wine. Everything belongs to the king. Everything exists for the king. Yet, Vashti insubordinately declares something different. She says, you want to bumble with the bee? Let's go, brother. And she does not give in to his demands. This scene, it sets the stage for the entire story that's about to unfold for two months that we're going to dive into. The queen is being summoned to parade around a room of drunken men, the king's trophy wife. Her insubordination mixed with his intoxication sets the stage for a great fallout. You can imagine that, right? A marital spat in the wake of a seven-day bender is probably not going to turn out well. It's important to note that Vashti's courage is right up there with the courage that we'll see in Esther, Ian Duguid in his commentary says, quote, The mouse had roared, and the glorious empire was shaken to its foundations by her refusal. The, the author of the book of Esther is making clear that the king of Persia is not the one who is ultimately in charge. Verse 13, the story continues. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, 
the men next to him being Karshanah, Shethar, Admathah, Tarshish, Maris, Marsanah, and Mamukon. I think that's right. The seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, verse 15, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? The, the king goes to his advisors, the best of the best, those who, who sat first in the kingdom. His, his inability to control the will of his wife has turned into a matter of domestic policy now. Verse 16, then Memucon said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, quote, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. In other words, O oh, glorious king, if your wife refuses to obey even your commands, what does this mean for our marriages? By the way, the moment you have to force the respect of your wife, you're probably not a very respectable husband. Verse 19, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This this advice pleased the king, you think? This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mimicon proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. The, the very decree itself, as it pertains to the queen, is absolutely absurd. The, the king says... To the queen, you may not come before me. He says, you may not come before me to a woman who's just said, you disgust me. I refuse to come into your presence. The king and his, his merry men decree the very thing that Vashti's already declared for herself. And, and the empire-wide order demanding that wives honor their husbands, it ends up doing the exact opposite of what the king is hoping for. It actually puts the embarrassment of his situation on full display for his entire empire. It declares that the entire kingdom, that the king who controls everything is responsible for, that that king cannot control the will of his very queen. The chapter ends on a bit of a cliffhanger, kind of like a good Netflix episode. You want to come back for episode two. Who will become the new queen in town, we're meant to ask. What will she be like? What does it mean that she's better than Vashti? Certainly, the story unfolds as to, to set the stage for a replacement. And, and though we don't see it explicitly, God is providentially working to establish this new queen. The, the author, in, in many ways, as I mentioned before, remains fairly morally ambiguous. There's no faulting of the king for his alcoholic overindulgence. There's no approval or disapproval of Vashti's refusal to appear before the king. 
And that's actually part of the literary brilliance of the whole story. We're meant to see how divine providence works as God moves the story forward, even through the most ambiguous people with the most questionable of motives. We're meant to to consider the irony of a king who's described in such great wealth and splendor in the first few verses who, by the end of the the chapter, the end of the very first chapter, can't seem to maintain his own dignity in the midst of the, the defiance of his queen. And so he acts in the absence of sobriety to to establish an empire-wide decree and to banish Vashti Vashti from the throne. This is the great king of the people. Again, turning his domestic affairs into some political upheaval. Nothing, as we read this story, is meant to be taken at face value. Nothing. We're meant to, to keep our eyes peeled for ironies, for satire throughout the entire story. We're meant to see that in a, in a land ruled by arrogant bozos like this guy, anything can happen. Even the, the attempted extinguishment of an entire minority segment of the population, namely the Jews. Welcome to the land of irrevocable law, ruled by a whimsically weak and unstable king who cares about little more than his own glory and pleasure. This, this is the most powerful empire of its time and it's being exposed as unbelievably weak you see that right that in some sense what the author of Esther is saying to us is the only way to walk in confidence is if your hope is in a greater king and a greater kingdom not of this world this story is it's just as much for us as it is for its original audience for one we're we're meant to, and this is maybe the most difficult piece of it all, we're meant to see a bit of ourselves in the great King Xerxes. Just so happens that the harem of women is digital these days. Just so happens that the display of self-glory and greatness happens to take place one social media post at a time. We're, we're a lot more like Xerxes than we'd like to think if we're honest. Not only that, though we may not face persecution based on our nationality, which is what we'll see as the story unfolds for the Jews, we do live in a world in which our beliefs as Christians are in direct conflict with a number of opposing worldviews that surround us. A different allegiance to a different king, trying to sort out how to live out that allegiance in our time and place in human history. And, and, And then, on top of that, there's our struggle with the perceived invisibility of God. He may have parted the Red Sea and raised Jesus from the dead as we celebrated last week, but we struggle to see him flex in our lives, don't we? Our dreams go unfulfilled, sometimes even godly ones. We don't know what to do with that. What are you thinking, God? What's your sovereign plan? doesn't seem to make sense to me. I want to do this for your glory. We wonder what he's doing. He remains hidden, his will unseen oftentimes. Coming back to that issue of allegiance, the book of Esther is incredibly helpful in that it essentially, you could say, shows the emperor as having no clothes. For, for those in Esther's day, it shows that, that those in power are not the fearsome giants that they appear to be. That the glory of the empire is brought low by the end of the very first chapter. We've still got nine more to go before this story's over. And we, already we see the weakness and folly of this, this king and his kingdom. We're meant to to look around to identify the competing worldviews of our day and to see those proverbial emperors as also having no clothes, to see the folly of of assimilating our our lives and our families to the cultural whims of the day. As Ian Dugan says in his commentary, he says, It is easy for us to be dazzled by the empire's ostentatious show, but it is empty of real power at the center. The empire of this world is a glittering hologram that has no real substance. 
True value, he says, lies in the values of an altogether different empire. Aren't you glad there's a better king and a better kingdom? Unlike the, the law of King Xerxes, God's law is for the good of his people. Jesus is the kind of king who, who invites his people into a loving, intimate relationship with him. As Karen Job says in her commentary, the leadership of Jesus was motivated not by his own personal fears and anxieties, which you know Xerxes had to be filled with. She says, but by the needs of those he governs as king of the universe. That, that Jesus' eternal banquet will far exceed the banquet of the great king Xerxes. That like G, Xerxes, Jesus will call for his bride, but it will not be to shame her, but rather to overwhelm her with his grace. Xerxes, as we see in chapter 1, uses his bride, treating her as an object to satisfy his needs. Jesus, meanwhile, died for his bride, giving himself up for her in order to rescue her in her moment of greatest need. Jesus you could say, died for the Xerxes in all of us. Coming back to Dugan in his commentary, he says it this way. I love this. He says, far from regarding her as a beautiful object existing solely to feed his pride and pleasure, Jesus took one who was by nature completely unattractive and gave himself for her, laying down his own life for his people. It was while we were still dead in our transgressions and sins that Christ gave himself for us, his life as a ransom for the ungodly. Everything we have, even the very righteousness in which we are clothed to appear before God, comes from his good hand. How can our hearts not be touched again with fresh love for a king who has loved us so freely and so graciously? That what we're meant to see, even in verse 1, is that we would be foolish not to respond to the invitation of such a good and glorious king as Jesus Christ is. And that if we do refuse his invitation, like Queen Vashti, we will be banished from his presence forever. We have to do something with this resurrected Jesus, even going back to last week. doesn't matter how much prosperity we have, how much comfort, how much power we might experience in this life. Even Jesus himself asked the question, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That you and I are invited into this eternally glorious banquet of the eternally glorious king. If you're not a Christian, come to him now and bend your knee for the very first time. And know this, that that king is at work in your life even when his fingerprints appear to be absent. He's always at work. We, we, we subtitled this series, The Silent Sovereignty of the Unseen God, for a reason. The, the book of Esther goes to great lengths to show us that God is always at work through ordinary events and flawed people. He's always bringing his redemptive purposes to fulfillment. Again, one last quote. Karen Job, she says in her commentary, the major theological point of the book of Esther is that God fulfills his covenant promises through his providence. The major point of contemporary significance is that God unfolds his will for individual lives through that same providence. God continues to work through providence, through seemingly insignificant events to call people in every age to himself. That, that if you've ever wanted to know God's will for your life, I'm giving it away in episode one here. His will is being revealed to you day by day in the ordinary unfolding events of your life. That's how God works. Job's goes on to say, the author is suggesting that beneath the surface of even seemingly insignificant human decisions and events, an unseen and uncontrollable power is at work that can be neither explained nor thwarted. 
That again, as you heard me pray earlier, like the great Aslan in Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the king, Jesus, is always on the move. And, and, and this is no whimsical king. This is no arrogant king. This is no unstable king. This is no unscrupulous king. This is King Jesus who is good, glorious, and gracious. The, the book of Esther tells us the story essentially of a reversal of destiny, as we're going to see as we dive into it further, which points to the greatest reversal of destiny that the world has ever known. That at the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus took our destiny of death upon himself so that you and I might live. This series is, is going to be a pretty wild ride. I hope, you, I hope you stick around for it. I hope you tell people who weren't here this morning to go podcast it and engage it from, from its beginning stages. I hope that as a result of it, that, that you become all the more grateful that Jesus is king. And I hope that you become all the more trusting of the providential hand of Jesus in your life as your king. In a moment, we're going to move into a time of worship in a variety of ways. From now until the end of the service, the communion tables will be open. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Just invite you to, to sit with the reality of just how good, glorious, and gracious the, the great King Jesus really is and all that he has accomplished for you in that great reversal of destiny as he took your death to give you life and then come when you're ready and receive of the elements. We'll also worship through prayer. If you want someone to pray with or for you, there will be people in the back to do so throughout the remainder of our service. And we're also going to engage in a time of worship through singing, where we get a chance to sing to this good, glorious, and gracious King. Even going back to last week, we don't worship a dead Jesus. We worship a risen King. We have an opportunity to sing to Him with our, with our very lips and to leave here and to sing with our lives.